from the wedding yesterday. And so we're a way of celebrating who they are. Those of you with children, we've got the Bible boxes at the back. You can grab those. Everyone else, let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to start with verse 1 and go through verse 15. Return to the Old Testament today and the history sections of the scriptures and the second volume of Samuel. As a pastoral counselor, uh, there's a fascinating temptation and that comes to our uh, profession. It has been identified by Dallas Willard and others as sin management. The basic situation is this. The person who comes to see you has no real intention of removing a certain sin from their life. But they want me to use my skills as a counselor to protect them from the consequences of that sin. Or at least to lower the consequences down to a manageable level. Where it doesn't hurt perhaps their bodies so much. Or their marriages so much. Or their children so much. Or their businesses or their communities so much. Now, of course, that temptation to try to manage our sin and use counselors and medications and manipulations and techniques to help us to do so is a very foolish decision. Let me give an analogy, and then I want to give an actual example of how this is true. First, the analogy. Imagine that you have the wherewithal to buy a high-octane, high-performance automobile. Now, you read the manufacturer's manual and you find out how you're supposed to treat this automobile. And you realize that you are supposed to buy a very specific and expensive fuel that will cause your automobile to respond with life and power and vigor when you put your foot on that pedal. But imagine that you decide, for a whole variety of reasons, that you don't want to follow the manufacturer's directions. You know that you can't put water into the tank or you will destroy your vehicle so you don't do anything that foolish. But you decide that you're certainly not going to pay the price and put in what the manufacturer prescribes you to do. You decide instead, for a whole variety of reasons, that you're not going to pay the price. So you go down to the cheapest place in town. You buy the lowest octane you can buy and you put it into your tank. Now, it's not that this fine machine won't go. It's just that it won't have the life and the power and the vigor that the creator of that machine wanted you to experience when you purchased that machine. Fact. The high pressure of the cylinders requires stable high-octane fuel, or it will harm the engine, produce uneven ignition, and explosions will happen at the wrong time, causing difficulty between the interactions of the cylinders. Now you can see from the analogy that to ignore the guidance of the Creator 
will impair the life and power and vigor of the individual and of everyone around them. The interactions will occur with explosions at the wrong time. The cylinders, the individuals, will not be able to interact at their peak capacity and even they will harm their own bodies as they do so. Now let me give you an actual example. That's just an analogy, a way of thinking about why it is we follow the manufacturer's recommendations on how to live a full and vigorous and healthy and whole and lengthy life on this planet as he intended. But let me give you an actual example in real life. There was a man who was not working at his job as he should have been doing and instead he was home during the day, during the night, with idle time. Standing on his deck, he looks down and sees a woman bathing. Beautiful, alluring, perhaps even aware of the eyes of the man. She accepts his offer to come and spend an evening with him. Her husband, a military man, is away at war. When they have their affair, she becomes pregnant. Wanting to manage their sin, the man arranges for the husband to come home and to be with his wife. An honorable man, the man will not do that while his fellow soldiers are in harm's way. Realizing he can't manage his sin by deceiving the husband, the man decides to manage the whole thing by having the husband killed. The deformed thinking that sin produces makes behavior like that seem manageable and reasonable. Just remove the person you've sinned against and then everything will be manageable again. So the man makes the arrangements and the husband is killed. The wages of sin is death. In sin management, it's often the innocent ones who are killed. Over the years, I have had too many conversations with people who have had an affair. The spiritual, relational, biological, marital reality begins to implode. Avoiding worship, finding fault with God and life and spouse and the Creator's guidance, the Word of God, the Bible. They live in a world of increasing delusion, increasing consequences, and unexpected and ill-timed explosions that destroy the interactions. Now, of course, this real-life example that I just gave you is David and Bathsheba. But as we read this, I would encourage you to read it in two ways. First, with humility. For we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Second, with openness to the specific sin that you might be trying to manage in your own life. 
it might not be the sin of lust or pornography or adultery or emotional affair. It may be something very different uh, that you struggle with. So listen to what God says to you about your specific sin that for a variety of reasons you are attempting to manage instead of confess and allow God to forgive and cleanse and to protect your very soul. So let's turn to the history books. We're going to go back now to the story of David. And 2 Samuel 11, we're going to start with the first verse and only go through the first 15 of this uh, very lengthy story. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, as David should have been doing his job, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent his word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was doing, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants, and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, Haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Father, as we read these stories, we know they are actual accounts of actual people who struggle with these passions and desires and the temptations that every human being feels. And we know you have had them 
remembered and written so that we're not blind in this moral world and the consequences of sin. But Father, it's hard for us. We often want to cover it up and manage it and not let anyone know. And It's so devastating to us. We would ask that as we together are just humble before you, as we seek your guidance in our lives so that we can live lives of power and vigor and joy and blessing, we would ask that you would speak to each of us. We're here because we want to hear from you. And so please speak because we're listening. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Now this is only the beginning of this story, and I encourage you to read the rest of it today. Go through. In fact, I would even encourage you to read the generational impact of David's sin on his children and on his grandchildren and what happens in his lineage. This is a tremendous implosion uh, that occurs, and it occurs in my life, it occurs in your life, whenever sin is not removed by the power of God. On every level, the blessing that could have been David's and could have been Uriah's and could have been Bathsheba's was lost because of that sin. It was impaired. And the consequences, as I said, were lifelong. They loved their son, but he died. And David's lustful sin became the undoing of their second son, Solomon. In addition to that, if you read through the accounts, there are so many accounts of David's children struggling, even an account of a brother raping a sister. But for this morning, the question is more immediate and it's more personal. What could David have done that would have blessed his life even after he sent? And of course, what can we learn then about how do we deal with sin? In addition to my counseling that I do, of course, for us as your pastor, I do much for others here in Santa Barbara. But I also have the responsibility of over 30 years caring for pastors who have fallen within our Southern California Conference. Sometimes it's for other sins. But sadly, most often, it is just for this, a sexual sin. It begins with a thought, then an enticement, then an action, then pretty soon an addiction, and soon we get a call that a pastor has fallen, and the family is devastated, and the church is devastated. Now what is interesting is that two things commonly occur. After immediately feeling shame and confession, desire to make things right, there's a, a reticence that sets in on most people. And the first thing that happens most often is that they blame the other person for the affair. They came on to me. I've even heard that of a pedophile who said a five-year-old came on to him. It's not his fault. David was walking in darkness. It was the middle of the night. 
Bathsheba was bathing within eyesight of his insomnia. Now what is interesting about this for David and for pastors and for any person who blames others for the sin that they have committed is that it doesn't work and in fact it makes it far worse. This attempt to shift the blame and manage the sin and be the victim of their schemes does not in any way stop the destruction either within the individual or between the individuals. And when denial occurs and management comes, it creates another level, level of destruction as we saw here in David's life. All attempts to manage sin creates a greater ripple of destruction as the consequences go from lust to cover-up to manipulation to a murderous disregard for others especially the innocent. In David, he uses his power position as king to manipulate Joab, the general of his army, to bring Uriah home. He uses alcohol to impair the character of Uriah to have him do what Uriah believed was sin for him. He uses his authority to force an underling Joab to join him in his sin and to cause an innocent man to die. Now that example is the ripple effect of sin. With names changed I could give you life after life in which the ripples go through a person and through a family through a community However, there is another way. I have, over the years, talked with hundreds and hundreds of people who have fallen into the temptation and sin, including adultery, who have not tried to cover it up, who have accepted responsibility, who have asked for God's forgiveness, who have become cleansed of that sin sickness that had so impaired them and harmed their marriage and their life and their walk with God and had become free from all of that. I've seen scores of marriages restored, deepened, blessed, as the couple forgave each other, and as they began to build trust in a hyper-accountability that's necessary for the restoration of that marriage. I've seen God protect and to care for them and to give them many decades of life. Wonderful, blessed, holy matrimony after that. Now as you read the rest of the story and as we read the words of Jesus, we recognize the second thing. That God's care for us is such that he will not just grant us forgiveness, but he will heal us of this sin sickness that so plagues humanity. Rather than managing our sin, he actually destroys the sin so that we are not destroyed by it. Years ago, Robert Munger did a Sunday evening sermon in which he gave the analogy of Christ moving into our hearts as though Christ was moving into our homes. And he takes this wonderful analogy of how when Christ moves in, he cleanses the library 
the kinds of books and material and things that we read and put into our brains and lives. He cleanses the dining room, the way we treat these physical bodies of ours. He cleanses the living room and where we relax and spend time and with whom we share it. He cleanses the workroom, the way that we make our living and in what way it matters to God as we are a Christ one in the midst of our workplace. He cleanses the rec room, how everything that we do from recreation to work to family to our diet to everything else, God is at work to cleanse and to create a beautiful, healthy, vibrant and vigorous life until one night this analogy that this pastor wrote ends with a hall closet and I want to just read the words that Munger writes there's just one more matter that I might share with you one day I found him waiting for me at the door an arresting look was in his eye as I entered, and he said to me, There's a peculiar odor in the house. There's something dead around here. It's upstairs. I, I think it's in the hall closet. As soon as he said this, I knew what he was talking about. Yes, there was a small closet up there on the landing, just a few feet square. And in that closet, behind lock and key, I had one or two little personal things that I did not want anyone to know about. I certainly did not want Christ to see them. I knew they were dead and rotting, things left over from the old life. And yet I loved them and I wanted them. I was afraid to admit they were there. Reluctantly, I went up with him. As we mounted the stairs, the odor became stronger and stronger. He pointed at the door. It's in there. Some dead thing. I was angry. That's the only way I can put it. I had given him access to the library, the dining room, the living room, the workroom, the playroom. And now he was asking me for a little two-by-four closet. I said to myself, this is too much. I am not going to give him the key. Well, he said, reading my thoughts, if you think I'm going to stay up here on the second floor with this odor, you are mistaken. I'll take my bed out on the back porch. I'm certainly not going to put up with that. I saw him start down the stairs. When you've come to know and love Christ, the worst thing that can happen is to sense his fellowship retreating from you. I had to surrender. I'll give you the key, I said sadly. But you'll have to open the closet and clean it out. I haven't the strength to do it. I know, he said. I know you haven't. Just give me the key. Just authorize me to take care of that closet, and I will. So, with trembling fingers, I passed the key to him. He took it from my hand, walked over to the door, opened it, entered it, took out all the putrefying stuff that was rotting there, 
and threw it away. Then he cleaned the closet and painted it, fixed it up, doing it all in a moment's time. Oh, what victory and release to have that dead thing out of my life. This morning we want to recognize that Jesus came so that we could be free from the sin that so harms us. The dead things that leave a stench in the nostrils of everyone around us. So I would say this morning, if there is anything you are tolerating, anything you are managing, hiding, anything you're covering up, defending, justifying, give Jesus authority to remove that from your life. He will cleanse you and set you free. Let's spend time with God.